Father God, thank you for our time together again. Thank you for this time we can set apart every week to solely concentrate on your word and on your son and and just uh, honor him with the honor that he deserves so much. And as we look at him today, as he stood silent as a lamb before his shears, may we learn from his example to be quiet in times when we should be silent and to try to gain more control over our tongues as he did and to have the wisdom he had and the peace that he offers to us, his peace in the midst of storms and accusations and and mistreatment and mockery and being set at naught and all he went through, he did give us a perfect example. We thank you for him. I thank you for every woman here who has a hunger and a desire to know you better. I pray that we will be blessed for having been here this morning. Even though this is sort of a history lesson, it is beneficial for us to understand um, everything that the Lord went through and why. And Lord, now I just pray that you would have your will and way in every heart. Help us to stay focused on what you have to say to us through your spirit using the word. For we pray in the name of our Savior. Amen. Well, as we discussed in last week's lesson, Pilate's initial conversation with the Lord Jesus ended with his question, what is truth? John 18:38. And then, unfortunately, instead of waiting around for an answer, which would have been a very good idea since he was speaking to truth incarnate, what did he do? What did Pilate do? He immediately went out again, it tells us, from inside the praetorium, unto the Jews who were waiting for him outside for his verdict. And he said unto them, I find in him no fault at all. And that is his first announcement of the Lord's innocency, his, his, his guiltlessness. He was officially acquitting Jesus of any civil or any criminal wrongdoing. Whoever this unique individual was who had been standing before him, whether he was a dreamer or if he was some kind of an otherworldly type of sage, Pilate was convinced of one thing, that he was not a political threat to Caesar. So basically, in our terminology, he was throwing the case out of court. Really, you know, as I was thinking through all of this, I wondered why Pilate never questioned or investigated the fact that Jesus was brought to him bruised, battered, beaten, and and bloody. You know, and he was supposed to be the one in authority, Pilate. He was the one in authority. He was supposed to verify the verdicts that were made by the Jewish courts. And he was the one who was to pronounce and execute the means of punishment if found guilty. You understand? So, for a prisoner to be brought to him, for him to verify the verdict that they had reached of guilty, um, to be brought to him for judgment in such a condition as Jesus was brought to him, meant that somebody had been guilty of brutal behavior, and they needed prosecuting themselves. But he didn't do that, did he? Unfortunately, we're going to find out there was no justice in Pilate's court just as there had been no justice in Caiaphas's court. And we find this to be true when after declaring Jesus innocent, Pilate didn't release him. Isn't that what he should have done right then and there? He just said he's not guilty. I find no fault in him at all. He should have released him, but he didn't do that. It was completely wrong. 
for him to keep him bound and under arrest after publicly and officially declaring him not guilty. But that's exactly what Pilate did when he soon discovered, after he made that announcement, that this verdict was received with an instant eruption of vehement shrieks of rage and shouts of all kinds of additional accusations against the Lord. You see, the one who was really the prisoner here was not Jesus. It was Pilate. Pilate was the real prisoner because he was a captive to his own fear of the Jews and their power to make trouble for him with Caesar. So we're going to pick up this lesson, The Lamb Before His Shears, part one, (laughs) with the outrageous reaction of the chief priests and the elders of Israel to Pilate's uh, verdict of innocence regarding Jesus. And today we're going to look at the silence of the Lord as he stands completely mute, saying not one word before his accusers, and then as he stands completely mute, saying not one word before Herod Antipas. And in our next lesson, Lord willing, next week, um, not next week, two weeks from now, we're going to look at the selection of the crowd. And that has to do with him trying to have another loophole to get out of killing an innocent man. And he offers them who? Instead of Jesus, you know, or, or he offers them to release one of the prisoners and they, I should say, chose Barabbas instead of the Lord. All right, so let's begin by looking at Christ's silence before his accusers. And for this, we're going to read, first of all, Matthew 27, verses 12 to 14. Then we're going to flip over to Luke. All right, Matthew 27, starting at verse 12. But if you'll notice verse 11, that is all that Matthew wrote about that first interview of Pilate and Jesus. He just asked that one question, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered by saying, Thou sayest. Mark did the same thing. Luke did the same thing. Remember, the only way we know about the dialogue and the what is truth question, etc., is from which gospel account? John. John's the only one who gave us all of that information. So when we read from verse 11 to verse 12, um, we, we miss all that in Matthew. But in verse 12, he says, And when he was accused of the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. So this is after Pilate said, I find no fault in him at all, and goes back out of the praetorium that the chief priests and elders um, accused Jesus again. And what did Jesus say? Nothing. He, Jesus, answered nothing. And look at verse 13. Then said Pilate unto him, unto Jesus, Hearest thou not how many hearest thou not how many things they witness against thee? And he, Jesus, answered him to never a word. That's funny, that sounds like a southern expression. To ne- to never a word. How would we say that today, basically? Not a word. He answered him not a word, but in the King James it's never a word. Insomuch that the governor marveled greatly. Alright, now let's move over to Luke, actually Mark contains, Mark um, 15, verses 3 to 5, contains exactly what we just read in Matthew, so I'm not going to read Mark's account of that, but let's look at Luke, because he gives us some different information. Luke 23, starting at verse 5, and they were, of course this is after, if you look at verse 4, after Jesus said, I find no fault in this man, verse 5 it says, and they, that speaks of the Sanhedrinists, were the more fierce, saying, he stirreth up the people. 
teaching throughout all Jewry, beginning from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked whether the man were a Galilean. Kind of shocked me there that Pilate didn't know Jesus was a Galilean. Hadn't dawned on him, I guess. But as soon as he knew that he belonged under Herod's jurisdiction, he thought he found his loophole, didn't he? His way to get out of this. Um, it says as soon as he realized he, he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was at Jerusalem at that time. Why would Herod also be in Jerusalem instead of up in Galilee where he was a tetrarch? Because of the Passover feast. All the leaders came to Jerusalem in case there was trouble that got stirred up. Because a lot of times when they had trouble, it was at a feast time. Um, the almost violent reaction that Pilate encountered from the chief priests and the elders of Israel may have startled him. I think he was rather shocked when he went out and pronounced his verdict, and they were just vehement, just, just the more fierce against Jesus with all kinds of accusations. I think that startled him, but really it shouldn't surprise us because we know that they had been plotting for a long time to kill Jesus. And after all their effort to get him arrested and uh, tried in secrecy through all of their illegal trials during the night and the ordeal that they had gone through, you know, and looking for false witnesses, etc., the ordeal they'd gone through to get this far, after all of that, it was absolutely horrific for them to hear that this prisoner they so hated and so badly want wanted killed by way of crucifixion was now declared innocent by the very one they were hoping would put him to death it just wouldn't do they wanted jesus dead and they wanted him dead soon why because the passover crowds were beginning to get up and they might get wise to the situation what was going on and uh you know rebel against their leaders so they went into a near riot to get their way, and they knew exactly how to do that with this governor, this man who currently served as their governor. They knew how to put Pilate between a rock and a hard place. They knew how to manipulate him to get their own way. And for us to better understand this, we're going to do a little jet tour history lesson through Pilate's experience with the Jews to this point in time. He is, he is Rome's fifth governor of, of Judea. You know, Judea is the southern province of Israel, but Judea at that time included Samaria to the north and also included Idumea to the south, if you look at a map, and he was the governor of that whole area. And if we do this history lesson, which we're going to, so it's all in your books, if you kind of get confused, it's in your books, but this is going to help us immensely to understand why Pilate did not release Jesus, even though he had just declared him to be innocent. It also will help us to understand why he tried to find some kind of a loophole, some kind of a way to get out of the situation entirely and not have Jesus' blood on his hands. How had things gotten so desperate for this Roman official that he capitulated to these Jews? Well, let's take a short look at the reign of Pontius Pilate to this moment in his life as governor of Judea. Now, Pontius Pilate had been appointed by Rome to his position as Roman governor over Judea in 27 AD. <clears throat> now, they figure this was probably around 32 or 33 AD, so he has been the governor of that area for some five to six years at this point, you know, to bring us to this point where Jesus is standing before him. And during the past five or six years, this man had managed to make some very serious miscalculations about the stubborn inflexibility 
of his subjects, the Jewish people, especially when it came to matters regarding their religion. The Jewish people, particularly of Judea and near and around the city of Jerusalem, needed a cautiously tactful man to rule over them. Uh, But Pilate came into office wanting to show them who was boss. The man's downfall was really his pride. Don't we find that so much in leaders? (laughs) But that was his downfall was, you know, he was proud. He was going to show them who was in control. Now, his predecessors had been very wise to show some degree of respect for, for Jewish religious taboos and Jewish religious traditions. But Pilate thought that those predecessors, you know, the governors who had gone before him, were weak for having done so. And therefore, he came into his position uh, determined to compel his subjects to obey the Roman way of doing things. And that spells trouble right there, doesn't it? Knowing the Jewish people. Can you imagine the Pharisees? Hmm? All right. Um, That might have worked with other conquered peoples, but... It wouldn't work with the Jews, and Pilate was going to find that out the hard way. He made some very serious mistakes that put him on shaky ground with Tiberius Caesar. And even though he was married to one of Augustus Caesar's granddaughters, and I think last week I told you he was married to one of Tiberius Caesar's granddaughters. That was wrong. Erase that. Rewind. Erase. Um, Some commentators said he was married to Caesar's granddaughter, and I just took it to be... Tiberius Caesar's, but I found out this week it wasn't. It was Augustus. Augustus was the Caesar um, in, in, who was the emperor over Rome when Jesus was born. So it was one of Augustus Caesar's granddaughters. Was What was her name? Claudia Procula, something like that. Yeah, we're, we'll get to her. We, we definitely find out about her. Um, because she had that dream. But anyway, so he's married to one of Augustus Caesar's granddaughters, and you think that would be okay, but it wasn't. You know, he, he, he got in serious trouble with, um, with Caesar, and he was to the point where one more error, if he made one more mistake, he would likely be banished from his position as governor. So he knew that he dared not offend these difficult Jews again. Ironically, even though he gave in to the Jews by crucifying Jesus, who he declares some six or seven times to be innocent, he winds up capitulating to them, and he does, as we all know, he does crucify Jesus. He did that so he wouldn't be banished from his position as Roman governor, but you know what happened anyway? What do you think? Some four years later, he was banished anyway. He made another mistake, and he was banished. And I don't know the end of Pilate, because there's tradition says this and something else says this, but one account says that he eventually did uh, commit suicide. I I don't know if he did or not. But trouble started for Pilate practically from the moment he set foot in Judah. As mentioned, those who preceded him as governor of Judea had been very prudent in showing their respect for the Jews' adamant obedience to the first two commandments regarding worshiping no other god and making no graven images. The other governors had been very careful about that because they knew how strongly the Jews felt about those two commandments. The previous Roman governors had made sure that when Roman troops entered into Jerusalem, they did not carry banners emblazoned with the image of Caesar on them. You know, after their captivity in Babylon, the Jews totally um, wiped out idolatry. Before they went into captivity, they had been turning to other gods. That's part of the reason for their judgment. 
But after spending 70 years in Babylon where they were surrounded by idol worship, they, they learned their lesson. So they, were, they almost carried things too far when they came back into the land as far as the first two commandments. I'll talk about that in a minute. But, but Pilate thought that it was, it was a weakness of character for a Roman leader to appease a subordinate people's superstitions and religious taboos. So in a very ill-advised attempt to demonstrate his new authority over these headstrong people, he deliberately offended them by commanding Roman soldiers stationed there in Jerusalem at Fort Antonia to bring in, during the night, you know, bring in secrecy, <laughs> uh, banners with Caesar's image on them, and to take those banners and plant them right there, you know, in public view of, of everyone. Not too wise, was it? So first thing in the morning, of course, the reaction of the Jews when they discovered these banners, their reaction was instant. They were furious. The angry Sanhedrin immediately dispatched a delegation of not only religious rulers, but also infuriated citizens to Pilate's headquarters in Caesarea. Remember, he's only in Jerusalem during feast times. So he ordered the Roman soldiers to come in with these flags with Caesar on them while he's safely over in Caesarea on the Mediterranean Sea. But uh, they sent this delegation to his headquarters there in Caesarea, and they requested that he remove those offensive um, banners, or at least remove the face of Caesar from those banners. And he anticipated this showdown. He figured this would happen, and he was not about to acquiesce. So what he did, he not only scorned their simple request, but he told them to lay prostrate on the ground in sorrowful entreaty of their request for five days and five nights, implying to them that if they would be willing to do that, lay prostrate in sorrow, you know, that after five days he would give in to their request. But what do you think he did on the sixth day? On the sixth day, when they met with him in the amphitheater there in Caesarea to again make their request, he had them instantly surrounded with his soldiers and threatened to have their heads removed from their bodies if they didn't give up their silly request and go home and stop bothering him. He would not, he told them, remove the banners, nor would he remove Caesar's image from the banners. Stubborn man. However, he was about to get his first taste of defeat with these obstinate people. And you can't help but admire their zeal here in what they did next, this delegation of religious leaders and, and, and just regular citizens. You know what those guys did upon hearing that Caesar would not, I mean, Pilate would not grant their request? Every one of them fell on the ground and exposed their necks. And they said, go ahead and behead us. I mean, that's zeal, isn't it? They, they, really, took, they, they really took their um, the, a violation of God's laws seriously, didn't they? And here's where I have to admit that I don't think it really was a violation of God's law, you know, about the not, um, 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 what is it? not worshiping any other god but God and not having any images of God because they didn't make the image of Caesar. It wasn't them. They didn't put Caesar's image on the banners, and they certainly weren't worshiping that image, were they? It's like they would carry it to the point 
where they would say these pictures of Jesus on these stained glass windows here, that that is wrong, that we're disobeying the second commandment. But we're not worshiping those as idols, are we? If you show your children a picture book of, you know, it has a Bible picture book and it has Jesus in there, it's not like you're worshiping the picture. You know, they carried it overboard. It's kind of like the Amish. You know, the Amish will not allow anybody to take their picture because they figure that's a graven image. So, you know, that's carrying it a little extreme. But still, you have to admire them, right? That they were willing. They were so, they, they, they uh, just were so zealous for their religion that they're willing to die for it here. Well, you know, <laughs> knowing that he had been sent by Rome to keep peace in Israel, Pilate was forced to capitulate because he couldn't begin his new governorship by creating a revolution, which surely would have happened if he beheaded all these men. What do you think would have happened when the rest of the Jews would have heard about that? There would have definitely been an uprising and Pilate would have been out of there in a hurry. So they had him in checkmate, didn't they? And he was forced to give in to their request and he removed the, the offensive banners. And that compliance proved to be his downfall, although really his downfall began when he proudly decided that he would not show the weakness that he thought his predecessors had shown um, when they displayed some kind of compromise with the Jewish religious beliefs. Pride goeth before what? A fall. He was now in for a rough reign because once the Jews took their measure of a man, and discovered his weaknesses, they knew how to make him putty in their hands. And really, this is where Pilate lost his, his authority over these people. Yet, unfortunately for him, even after this bad experience, he continued to pridefully convince himself that he was still the one running things. And it was not long after this banner incident that he again determined to flex his muscles with these people. Jerusalem, and everyone knew this, was in dire need of a new aqueduct system to get water, a water supply into the city. And the Jews believed that their overlords, the Romans, should pay for it with their own currency, and with, which, with the money that they gave as, you know, in taxes to Rome. They believed Rome should pay for the new aqueduct system, which involved like 50 miles of, of water pipes to be brought into the city. So it was an expensive project. But Pilate mortified them. Where do you think he got the money to pay for this project? He took it out of the temple treasury. Mm, that was considered a sacrilege to them. That was God's money. And that became a hotbed of antagonism and further hostility between the Jewish people and Pontius Pilate. And I thought that isn't it ironic that, that a few years later, the Sanhedrin members did not consider it a sacrilege to take money out of the temple treasury to pay a man named Judas to betray the Son of God. Aren't they a bunch of hypocrites? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So what happened? Well, the next time that Pilate was in Jerusalem during one of the Jewish feasts, he found himself immediately surrounded by a very angry mob. They were mad that he had taken money out of their temple treasury, so they surround him. But again, he anticipated that this would happen. So he had ordered some of his Roman soldiers to dress themselves in civilian clothes and hide their weapons in their clothing and disperse themselves in the crowds. And they were told to be prepared to deal with any troublemakers. And when these soldiers saw that Pilate was surrounded by this mob, now these were innocent 
I mean, just angry people. They weren't armed, and they were just trying to petition him. But when the soldiers who were disguised saw this happening, then they went way beyond crowd control. They assailed the unarmed crowd with greater severity than Pilate had intended, and the terrible consequence was the brutal slaughter of many innocent Jewish people. In addition to that, as uh, some of them were being clubbed to death, many others were trying to get out of there. I don't know where they were, maybe in the temple court or somewhere, but they were trying to get away and get out of there, and so a number of Jewish people were also trampled to death trying to get away. So it was not good. And then there was another incident, which actually we find in Scripture. In Luke 13, 1, if you just want to look at that real quickly, but Jesus was questioned about this, and it was something that apparently had taken place so recently that it was still fresh in everyone's minds. It would be like if we were talking about the tornadoes that just hit the Midwest. Uh, was that last week or a week and a half ago? Something very fresh in people's minds, and, and Jesus was questioned about it. So this is actually one incident that is found in Scripture. Pilate had mingled the blood of some Galileans with the blood of their sacrifices right as they were engaged in offering those sacrifices in the temple. So, um, what was this all about? Well, some Bible commentators and, and history students think that these Galileans who were killed, as they're there in the temple, you know, they go to the temple to offer their sacrifices at whatever feast day it was, but some think that they were uh, killed by Pilate's soldiers because they were part of the faction of Judas Galanita, who is actually also referred to in Scripture as Judas of Galilee, Acts 5.37. There was a man named Judas Galanita. They called him Judas of Galilee because he was from Galilee. But he had renounced Caesar's authority altogether. And along with his followers... They all refused to pay taxes to Rome, to Caesar. Isn't that interesting? In Jesus' own time of, of his lifetime, or right in, during his lifetime, before probably his public ministry, but there was this other man from Galilee who was refusing to pay taxes to Caesar and trying to get other Jewish people not to pay their taxes to Caesar. So now do you understand why the Jews wanted to accuse Jesus of the same thing? of, you know, getting people not to pay their taxes. Well, some speculate that these Galileans were part of this Judas's um, forces, but others speculate that they were merely innocent Galileans who were wrongly suspected by Pilate's men as being part of the rebellious faction. And they were just innocent Galileans who were, were killed while they were there in the temple. We don't know exactly if they were innocent or not, but because of the fact that all Galileans were to come under the jurisdiction of Herod, right? Herod was Tetrarch of Galilee. This may be, and a lot of Bible students think that this is why we read in Luke twenty-three twelve that there was enmity between Pilate and Herod. Because when Pilate had Galileans killed, when they were down in Jerusalem of Judea, he was overstepping his jurisdiction. Those guys came under Herod's jurisdiction. And so there was enmity between these two guys. But 
So that was another mistake that he made, but then it was his next offense, Pilate's next offense, that was practically his undoing. As you can imagine, by this point in time, I don't know how many years he's been ruling, maybe three or four by this point in time, but the citizens of Judea were really getting angry at their governor. They're seething with anger over him at all that he's done so far. And you, wouldn't you think that the guy would just lay low for a while and that he just would try to keep the peace? <laughs> but because bad reports kept going back to Rome and to Caesar about him, he decided that he would gain favor back with Tiberius Caesar and he would do it by having these beautiful special shields of gold made for the Romans' guard at Fort Antonia there in Jerusalem. Now, that would be fine if he just made the gold shields. But, of course, what do you think he put on the gold shields? Dumb Caesar's image. <laughs> and a nice little inscription that they were given from Pontius Pilate in honor of Caesar Tiberius, um, Tiberius Caesar. Well, of course... This didn't set well again. He didn't learn his lesson, and the Jews went to him to petition to have those shields removed, but he refused to do so. So what do you think the Jews did this time? They sent their delegation this time all the way to Rome. They petitioned Caesar himself. And Caesar, whose side did he take? He, take, he took the Jews, the Jews' side. He rebuked Pilate for his lack of wisdom, and he ordered those shields, shields to be removed to Caesarea. So his attempt to find favor with Caesar backfired on him. Tiberius was more concerned with the prospect of a rebellion from these headstrong Jews than he was in offending the pretentious flattery of Pilate. He knew what that was all about. He knew that Pilate was just, you know, pretending to flatter him. So... That takes us to where we are today in our study. And I hope that this quick little summarization of Pilate's first five or six years as governor of Judea helps to set the stage, does it? To help us to understand better why he was so very concerned about avoiding another Jewish riot and having another complaint taken directly to Caesar. He knew that this would be the straw that broke the camel's back, you know. Likely one more complaint to Caesar and he would be done with. So to protect himself, he was obliged to walk on eggshells here. He needed to treat these Jewish leaders with kid gloves. Um, and the clever, conniving Jews knew it. Of course they knew it. They knew that basically they had him at their mercy. So when he came out to them from within the praetorium, the judgment hall, with his no-fault verdict regarding Jesus, they let him have it. They let him have it. Luke tells us, and if you're in Luke 23 again, Luke 23, 5 says that they were the more fierce as they made their many accusations against Jesus. The chief priests and the elders, notice it's not the common people here making these accusations. It's the leaders of Israel. They knew that they could accomplish more with a threatened riot and turmoil than they could with an argument. So they made up all kinds of accusations, additional accusations from those that they already made. They probably repeated the same ones. He's a malefactor. He's trying to get people not to pay their taxes, all that kind of garbage. But they threw in more because we're told they made many accusations. And they didn't care one single bit if those accusations were true or not, did they? 
Not one single bit. bit. And in fact, they knew they weren't true. They knew that. That's why they had to go out and try to find false witnesses. Well, in the midst of all of their angrily shouted accusations of all sorts, Pilate was observing Jesus' reaction. And what he saw absolutely amazed him. It says he marveled greatly. He did not see, as you would expect to see, a man who was visibly agitated and very nervous and worried. A man who knew that his life swung in the balance. And a man who was, you know, even trying to plead with Pilate to save him. He didn't see a man standing there in trepidation or begging, you know, falling on his knees before Pilate and begging him not to turn him over to the crowds or not to, you know, do what the crowds are are commanding. Nor did he see an angry man who reviled back at his enemies, which you also would expect from human nature, right? You'd either have a guy nervous or you'd have a guy very angry and spewing back accusations at the crowd with anger all over his face and, and curse, you know, cursing and all that sort of thing. He didn't see a man full of bitterness at those he had done nothing against except tell them the truth and do merciful things for them. He saw not even hatred or dislike in the man's face as he's looking at Jesus. He didn't see any hatred in his face, not even dislike in his eyes. What did he see instead of all that? He saw a man who was so full of peace and calm that it just amazed him. It was a peace that passed all understanding. And he likely also detected a look of sorrow in the man's countenance. But not a sorrow for himself. It was a sorrow for his accusers. And a sorrow for the land of Israel. Like when he stood up there, wept, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. This Jesus was indeed a very, very unique man, Pilate had never seen anyone like him before. I can say that because I know it's true. <laughs> never seen anyone like him. Jesus stood there in total silence and utter calm in the midst of a hailstorm of wicked darts that were aimed right at his heart, one dart after another, satanic wicked darts. You know, Jesus could have uttered Three words in the English. I think it's two in the Greek. But he could have uttered three words in the English and the whole storm would have been over. You know that? Remember when he was on a stormy sea, the Sea of Galilee, and he stood up in a boat? And that was a satanically induced storm too. We talked about that. And what did he say? Peace be still and instant calm. He could have said that during this storm when they're bombarding him with all these false accusations. He could have just said, Peace, be still. And there would have been instant calm. No one would have been able to open their mouths and Pilate would have been able to release him. But he didn't do that. That wasn't the plan, was it? So watching Jesus, Pilate, genuinely, there, you know, he was a wicked man, Pilate was, but there was, he, he had, still didn't have his conscience seared like Herod did. And he genuinely wanted to reach out and help this unique man. And so he tries to encourage Jesus to say something in his own defense, something that would expose the truth 
of the matter about this unusual loathing of the Jewish people or the Jewish leaders toward him. I think it's at this point that Pilate gets wise to the fact that these guys are just jealous of him. They're envious of him. So he says to Jesus, Hearest thou not how many things they witness against thee? Are you just going to stand there, silent, not saying a word? Over in Mark, he says, Answerest thou nothing? And we're told by Matthew that the Lord spoke never a word. Never a word. Mark says he answered nothing. He calmly refused to dignify the false charges by replying to them. He would not stoop to self-defense in the face of such false slanders, even though it placed his life in jeopardy. Most prisoners would do what? They would be more than eager to say or do something to attempt to save themselves, especially if they were innocent of those charges, and especially if Pilate was giving them the opportunity to speak, to speak on his own defense, as Pilate was doing here. You know, Pilate had no concept of living according to a higher principle than the dog-eat-dog world that he was used to, where you try to get your enemy before your enemy gets used to you. And it was just, to him, it was so exceptionally unique to have a man say absolutely nothing in his defense and not even cry out for mercy and to behave so absolutely dignified and noble in the face of such detestable injustice that he did marvel. He marveled greatly, we are told. Well, why, and this is one of your homework questions, why did Jesus say nothing? Why didn't he speak? Well, part of it, was because there was no need for him to say anything. Pilate knew the truth of his innocence, didn't he? He had just come to the conclusion and declared it publicly that there was no fault in him. So Pilate knew the truth about all those accusations. Even the Jews themselves knew the truth that their accusations were false. They knew that, didn't they? That's why they called the money they paid Judas blood money, because it was paid for, you know, to kill an innocent man. They knew there was no proof to substantiate any of their charges. So why did Jesus remain silent? There was nothing more for him to say. Everyone there knew the truth of the situation, but no one was willing to do what was right. Isn't that amazing? No one was willing to do what was right. Just as he had remained silent, before Caiaphas, in that second Jewish trial in Matthew 26, 62, his silence actually spoke louder than words he could have said. His silence was a loud indictment against their evil. Sometimes it's better to keep silent in a situation if you're being accused wrongly. You know, it's not worth trying to speak out in your defense because you're giving dignity to the accusation. I remember, Catherine, remember when I was accused of being a witch? teaching witchcraft here in the Bible study, that wasn't worth responding to. That person didn't have a clue what was going on in here. And just, you know, I'm not teaching witchcraft. I don't need to respond to such a silly thing. So Jesus didn't give dignity or any credibility to their lives by responding to them. His silence says that you cannot argue or reason with that which is illogical and ridiculous. So just don't try. You know, his example to us here. Last week, he gave us a good profession of how he answered Jesus, uh, Pilate. Here he's giving us a good example by when to, when to be silent. And then to remember, his silence is another proof of his, of his messiahship, isn't it? 
Some 700 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53, 7 said that although the Messiah, when he came, would be oppressed and he would be afflicted, yet he would be as a lamb that is led to slaughter and as a sheep that is silent before her shears, he would not open his mouth. Um, I heard one of uh, the pre- uh, preachers, he, he, a preacher that I really like, he, he had gone to a, a farm where they have lambs, and he studied about what they did. And you know when a lamb is sheared, it doesn't utter a word. It just stands there and lets, lets the guy shear all the wool off of the lamb. Doesn't say, doesn't try to get away or anything, just stands there. Same thing when they're led to the slaughter. Not a bar or anything. They just go right to the slaughter and the, the necks are cut and the blood comes out and they never protest or anything. Hmm? They're dumb. <laughs> I would be fighting with every ounce of my energy. <laughs> well, you, well, Jesus wasn't dumb, though. Yeah, he was doing, he was fulfilling prophecy. But Pilate, Pilate wasn't only greatly amazed. He was also in a quandary about what to do in this situation, how to get out of this difficult situation. He was utterly convinced of Jesus' innocence. But he didn't know how to deal with these crazy Jews, obviously. <laughs> His history shows he doesn't know how to deal with these crazy Jews who are refusing to let up here. And then, suddenly, his ears heard one of those accusations, and it dawns on him. What is the accusation? Look at verse 5, Luke 23, 5. One, somebody said, he stirreth up the people teaching throughout all Jewry, beginning from Galilee. Ah, that could be the answer to his dilemma. Jesus is a Galilean. You know, he asked, is he a Galilean? Yes, he's a Galilean. So, um, it hadn't dawned on him before, I don't know why, but it did now, that he came under the jurisdiction of Herod Antipas. And of course, Herod was also in town. They may have been sharing the same residence, like Caiaphas and Annas. Maybe Herod was on the other end of that building, I don't know, probably right there near the Fort Antonia. But he was nearby, so... Pilate would just send Jesus straightway over to Herod and be done with the whole thing. Now, of course, Pilate's motivation was not for justice here. Rather, what was it for? Pass the buck, exactly. It was for his own personal gain. He could avoid the anger of the Jews on himself, save his own neck with regard to Caesar. He could get out of condemning an innocent man and having his blood on his hands. And one more little benefit. He could reconcile matters with Herod. Herod. Remember, there had been enmity between them, Luke 23, 12. It tells us about that. So, And that was perhaps over the slaughter of those Galileans, which had occurred sometime earlier. Now, being himself a bloody man, Herod would really not have cared that innocent Galileans had been slaughtered as they're offering their sacrifices in the temple. That wouldn't mean anything to him. What made him angry was that Pilate had overreached his authority and killed people who were supposed to be under his jurisdiction. So in sending Jesus to Pilate, um, to Herod, Pilate would be paying respect this time to Herod's jurisdiction. And you know, when it comes to politics, a little ego building goes a long way, doesn't it? (laughs) So he was going to be stroking Herod's ego in doing this. So uh, we find that Pilate was happy. He thought that he had found his escape, his loophole to get out of this mess. So straightway he sends Jesus over to Herod. So let's look now at Jesus' silence before Herod Antipas. And stay in Luke. We're going to read verses 8 to 16. And when Herod saw Jesus, 
he was exceeding glad, for he was desirous to see him of a long season, because he had heard many things of him, and he hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. This is the first time Jesus and Herod ever meet, okay? And Herod's excited about it. Then he questioned with him in many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. You see, the scribes and the chief priests moved over from outside of Pilate's part of the building to Herod's part of the building, and now they're outside Herod's hall of judgment, vehemently accusing Jesus. You get the picture? All right, and uh, verse 11, And Herod, with his men of war, set him at naught. That is a terrible thing. It means that they, they set Jesus at naught. They considered him to be nothing. Set him at naught and mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him again to Pilate. Poor Pilate. <laughs> Same day, Pilate and Herod were made friends together for before they were at enmity between themselves. And Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, said unto them, Ye have brought this man unto me as one that perverteth the people, and behold, I have examined him before you, have found, have found no fault in this man touching those things whereof ye accuse him. Again, that's his second declaration of Jesus' innocence. And then he says, No, nor yet Herod. In other words, Herod has not found any fault in him either to say that he's worthy of a death sentence. For I sent you to him, and lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. I will therefore chastise him and release him, and we'll get into that at another point. But the second phase now, we, we turn to the second phase of the Lord's civil trials, nothing civil about it, but as he stands before Herod in this second Roman trial, we find that this is one of the most tragic stories in the New Testament. Now, at first, it sounds rather hopeful because we read that Herod was exceeding glad because he was desirous to see Jesus. You know, he'd wanted to see him for a long time, it tells us, because he had heard what? Many things of him. Of course, he was the Tetrarch of Galilee. Where did Jesus spend most of his earthly ministry? In Galilee, performing many, many miracles up there. And so you know Herod had heard for many years, for at least three years, he had been hearing about this Jesus, and he wanted to meet him. He had heard of Jesus from the very beginning, really, because he had heard of him from John the Baptist. Remember that? We'll talk about that a little more later on. Um, he heard from him, about him from the crowds of Galileans who thronged Jesus everywhere he went. Uh, he would have heard about the feeding of the 5,000 and um, all kinds of things. He would have heard about Jesus from a nobleman in his own court. Do you remember back in, I think it's John chapter 5, that there was a certain nobleman who lived in Capernaum, and he was actually a courtier in the house of Herod. And he walked all the way to Cana because he heard Jesus was going to be in Cana. And he beseeched him on behalf of his son, who was at the point of death. And Jesus healed his son from a distance. When he got home, he found out that his son had been healed that same hour he talked to Jesus. That man lived in Herod's palace there. So I'm sure he heard from the nobleman of Capernaum. He also would have heard about Jesus from his personal steward, a man named Chuza, C-H-U-Z-A. His name is found in the scripture um, because uh, he was a believer 
Cusa was a believer. His wife's name was Joanna. How many of you have heard of Joanna? Yes, she was a believer, and she actually traveled with Jesus and his disciples and was one of those women who ministered to Jesus. And also, Herod would have heard about Jesus from his own foster brother, a man who was raised in his own home as a brother with him and Philip and his other brothers. This man's name is also in Scripture in Acts 13.1, a believer named Manaen. However, so he had a lot of chances to hear about Jesus, didn't he? For many years. He even heard one time from Jesus himself, and Jesus himself told him that on the third day he would be perfected. He told Herod about his, own, his resurrection on the third day. However, sadly, <clears throat> by this point in time, Herod, you know, had heard and heard and heard, and what did he do every time? Hardened his heart, hardened his heart, hardened his heart. So by the time Jesus is standing in front of him, he has seared his conscience, <clears throat> which a person can do. Now, his only reason for being so excited about finally meeting Jesus is that he hopes for a new thrill. He wants to be entertained. He wants to be amused with something new, some great miracle, something different during his stay in Jerusalem. You know, it's pretty boring to go to Jerusalem because everybody's so pious. It's the Passover, and there's not a whole lot of fun in the city at that time. <laughs> and so likely he had grown very bored with his, un his usual degenerate entertainment. You think of Salome dancing for him, right? So, with this purpose in mind, Herod questioned Jesus, we are told, in many words. Many words. He tried everything he knew to get Jesus to respond. But do you notice that the Holy Spirit does not inspire Luke? Luke is the only one who gives us this trial, Jesus before Herod. But the Holy Spirit did not inspire Luke to record any of Herod's bombardment of words and questions and, and even maybe threats. They, why, why do you think the Holy Spirit didn't inspire? I mean, we did have that dialogue between Pilate and Jesus, right? But we don't have the dialogue here. Well, there was no dialogue because Jesus never answered him. But um, why don't we have any of, of Herod's questions or what he said to Jesus? Well, I believe the reason is because they were nothing but evil hot air and not worthy to be recorded. People like Herod don't ask noble questions. C.H. Spurgeon once said, he said, fools can ask more questions in 10 minutes than wise men can answer in 50 years. <laughs> Herod very likely taunted and challenged and threatened Jesus to perform a miracle. He probably even promised him his freedom if he would do some great miracle for him. Probably said, you know, if you'll just speak to me and perform a miracle, I'll let you go. He would likely have used every trick in his arsenal, you know, of his politically corrupt trade to get some kind of a response from his prisoner. But Jesus spoke not a single word to him. Jesus didn't even ask him a question back. <laughs> you know why? Whenever he asked a question back, it was to get the own pers that, that person to do a self-examination. He was trying to draw that person to himself. But you see, in not speaking to Herod, that tells us right there that Herod has stepped over the line. He is not reachable anymore. Herod is the only man in the New Testament to whom the Lord did not speak when spoken to. He had, you see, silenced the voice of God. That's a dangerous position to be in. That's why it's so dangerous to go to church week after week and hear the gospel over and over and over again and continue to harden your heart. 
To those with a worldly and an irreverent curiosity, Jesus has nothing to say. There are people like that out there that just want to know about Jesus because they're curious. Or they like to study only prophecy because they get a little thrill up their leg or something, you know, and they're just curious about things. Or they just want to see a miracle and they don't really want to get to know Jesus. So to them, you know, he, he has nothing to say. He would not cast his pearls before swine. Herod was a swine. This was not a matter of Herod judging Jesus. Jesus had already judged Herod. Herod Antipas was, he didn't have a very good lineage. He was the son of an Idumean named Herod the Great. His father was the one who had slaughtered all the innocent little baby boys up to two years of age in Bethlehem. Didn't have a good father example at all, Herod the Great. His mother was not Jewish either. She was, Samarit- she was a Samaritan, and her name was Malthrace. So he wasn't Jewish. He came from a very evil family. His ancestry went back to Esau. You know, the Idumeans were from Esau, not Jacob. The Jews despised him as a ruler over them, as he despised the Jews over whom he ruled. He really was like Esau in many ways, in that he despised his birthright, the birthright being Christ and spiritual matters. He despised the idea of a Christ, a Messiah, etc. And his treatment of Jesus demonstrates this. His interest was just like Esau in the flesh. He had, as you all know, an adulterous affair with his own brother's wife. He had gone to Philip. Philip was relatively a good tetrarch, his brother. I mean, you know, none of them were good, but um, because there is none good, but Philip was a whole lot better than Herod. And he had gone to visit his brother Philip, and his wife Herodias was flirting with Herod, and Herod was flirting with her, and they both had a, they had an adulterous affair. They were both married. They had an adulterous affair, and then Herod divorced his wife, and, and Philip she divorced Philip, and they came together in marriage. And who had denounced that marriage publicly? John the Baptist. And of course, because of that, Herodias had Herod throw him in the dungeon of uh, Macarius, the dungeon there. But he divorced his own wife to marry Herodias. His reign as Tetrarch over Galilee and Perea lasted too long. It lasted 33 years, from 6 to 39 A.D. And once upon a time, before his conscience was seared, he had come very close to entering into the kingdom of God. He had once, we are told, listened gladly Mark 6.20, to the words of John the Baptist. And he was drawn to the godly prophet. He used to go down into that dungeon where he had him and speak to him for hours, and he would listen to him. You know that John told him about Jesus, of course. Um, But there came a day when Herod gave way to his lust and his drunkenness one too many times. He made a very foolish promise to his wife's young, sensual daughter, Salome, Reminds me of Salami. (laughs) And she did this dance in front of him, and he was drunk, and all his peers were drunk, and he promised her because it just, you know, thrilled him so much that he would give her whatever she asked for. And, of course, her mother, who was the wicked one behind all of everything, she told her daughter to ask for the Baptist's head. And to save his pride before his drunken peers, he kept his promise, and he presented the Baptist's head on a charger. Awful, just awful. I always 
when I, I know this is just silly, but whenever I go to somebody's house and they have chargers on the table, I always say, this is very biblical. <laughs> but where's the head? <laughs> oh, do you know when Jesus sent, now they never had a conversation, Jesus and Herod, but there was a point one time when Jesus sent Herod a message. And we can find that message in, where is it, Luke 13, 32. So if you want to go look at it, you can just go a few pages back. But when Jesus heard that Herod had put the Baptist to death, he sent a message. And in that message, well, I probably should go back there too and read it. Um, what did I say, 1332? Here's the message he said, sent to Herod. Go ye and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out devils, and I do cures today and tomorrow, in other words, many miracles, and the third day I shall be perfected. So he told Herod who he was. I cast out demons, I do many miracles, and guess what, Herod, on the third day, I'm going to be resurrected from the dead. But what did he call him there? That fox. And what's interesting is in the Greek, it's the feminine for fox. It's a, a she-fox. In other words, vixen, which is not a good thing to call a woman. And he called Herod a vixen. Why do you think that is? Well, it's because Jesus knew exactly who was running things. It was that vixen he had married, Herodias. It was kind of like Jezebel and Ahab. Who was running things in that home? Jezebel. And the same thing was going here, on here. It was Herodias, Herod's wife, who was dictating the way Herod would act. And how was she getting her way? What was she using? Sex and lust to get her way. And Jesus knew it. And that's interesting. He called Herod a vixen. Well, now for the first time in his life, this adulterous, murderous, immoral Herod is meeting Jesus. This corrupt man is to be the judge of the sinless Jesus? Talk about a travesty and justice. When he had first heard of Jesus, he had enough conscience left to be fearful of him. Why? Remember when he first heard of Jesus, he thought that he was who? John the Baptist, resurrected from the dead. Now, however, and maybe that's why Jesus said on the third day, I'll be perfected. I'm coming to get you, Herod. <laughs> now, however, he had declined so far in his debauchery that he no longer had a conscience. He doesn't fear anyone anymore. If he had had anything left of his conscience, he should have feared seeing Jesus, the Christ. He knew of Jesus' powers. He knew of his godliness. When a man's conscience is seared, he will manifest gladness when he should manifest grief. He should have been grieving and mourning when he finally met Jesus. But instead, it says, you know, he was exceedingly happy and glad because he was hoping to get a thrill. And unlike Pilate, Herod did not even fear the chief priests and the elders, the scribes, who are now outside of his residence, vehemently accusing Jesus while he's busily engaged inside trying to get some trick out of, out of Jesus. He ignores them completely. He doesn't go out to them. He just ignores the Jews out there. You see, even the wicked Herod knew, knew that all their accusations were false. He hears those accusations. He pays no attention to them. He's not worried about trying to capitulate to them or appease them. He knows that they're full of lies. And uh, like Pilate, as we read in verse 15, he found no fault in Jesus either. 
But the chief priests and the, and the, uh, the scribes knew Herod. They knew him. And they actually were more afraid of him than they were of Pontius Pilate because they knew of Herod's perverse interest in amusing himself. And likely they feared that he might just throw Jesus into a prison somewhere and go down there periodically to talk to him and maybe keep trying to get a miracle out of him or something. You know, he had done that with John the Baptist, so I'm sure they're afraid that he is not going to condemn Jesus to die and do it right now like they want. So they're more afraid of Herod than Pilate. And they were right because um, he does not, Herod does not condemn Jesus to die. Instead, he treats his prisoner as a buffoon, as a holy buffoon. Just, well, not even as a holy, he, he treats his holy prisoner as a buffoon, I should say. When he realized that he was going to get absolutely nothing out of Jesus, not a peep, not a word, not a miracle, nothing, uh, he proceeds to boldly mock him. It tells us that he and his men of war treated Jesus, the son of the living God, as a joke. They treated him as a nobody. It says they set him at naught. A lot of people do the same thing with Jesus. They think that he is of no value whatsoever to their lives. What are they doing? They're setting him at naught. A lot of people do that with Jesus. They set him at naught. He's just not worth even investigating his claims. And a lot of people treat him as a joke, don't they? Isn't it nice to hear spring in the air? The little birdies cheep, tri- chirping, chirping, cheeping. <laughs> the folly of, of Herod and his men of war is seen in their ridicule of Jesus. They dress him up in a gorgeous robe, we are told. And in the Greek, the word for gorgeous is lampran. Um, and it absolutely refers to a gorgeous robe, one that is just shining in its brilliance and white as white as Clorox can get white. White, shining, beautiful robe. Now, Herod and his men of war are doing this to mock Jesus and his kingship. You know, you're the king of the Jews. Ha, ha, ha. What a joke. But God uses that robe to speak of Jesus's innocence, the utter whiteness of the robe and of Jesus' kingship in, in just the beauty and brilliance of, of the robe. So we see again the hand of God over-orchestrating the evil of men. Well, throughout all of this indignity of both Herod's mockery inside the building and the vehement accusations of the chief scribes and um, his chief priests and scribes outside the building, what do we see Jesus doing? utter silence. He speaks not a word. It's simply further confirmation that, again, he was the Messiah of whom Isaiah prophesied, the lamb being led to the slaughter who would not open his mouth. And can't, I mean, all we can do when we, when we picture all this in your mind is just marvel, like Pilate did, marvel greatly at the integrity of our Lord and Savior. You know, it says in James or Proverbs or somewhere, that only a, a perfect man, I think it's James, only a perfect man is able to bridle his tongue. And how true that is. Because no man, no woman <laughs> can bridle the tongue. But there was a perfect man who could. And he is Jesus Christ and he is our example. All right, let's pray. 
Father God, thank you again for this lesson. Thank you for our Lord who is our example in all things, how we do love him and praise him and worship him and, and just thank you that um, he is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is Lord and Savior, creator, redeemer, so much, everything to us. I pray for those who do set him at naught that they would get wise to the truth of Jesus Christ before it is too late, especially those in our circle of influence, our our friends and our loved ones, Lord, oh, please reach them before it is eternally too late. We love you. Go with every woman. Bring us all back next week and prepared with homework done and ready to hear about women mentoring women. And we do pray these things, Jesus, in your beloved name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.